0: Your glory here among us. Great is our hope. Well, how are you guys? Good. Well, thank you for being here uh, for this month's Tao Talk. Um, Obviously, I'm not Rick. (laughs) So I'm actually going to be handling things uh, today. And I wanted to share about this topic of uh, what does God say about us? And how do we develop a relationship? Uh, with God. So you'll notice it's a little bit different if you're following along on the outline. It's a little bit different layout than usual. Usually um, we have points that you can kind of follow along, And we do have points per se, but they're more of a question for us to ask and answer uh, together. And then on the right hand side, uh, next to each one of these three points that we're kind of getting into in a second are some, what I believe are some tips that we can kind of follow along with help when we need answers for those questions and we need to kind of jump back on track with our relationship with God, some things can, that can kind of help us out. So you're going to notice, uh, when, we t- when, I, when I'm talking about how we can develop a relationship with God, we have to kind of stay, take a step back and ask what God says about us. And it can best be summarized into remembering the acronym RIM, R-I-M. And I think that the three components for us to remember about God, and what God says about us, is that it comes down to our relationship, a relationship, Identity and mission So what does that mean? Well, let's talk about it relationship first Why does God care about me and why does God love me? I think a lot of us ask that question a lot, right? Just by the way, remember you're allowed to ask questions pipe up whenever you want. It's not just gonna be me flapping my gums at you the whole time So feel free to add in your own thoughts or ask questions. Why does God care about me and why does God love me? We know that God cares about us because he sees us as the greatest thing that he made in all of creation, right? If you remember back at the beginning in the book of Genesis, in the six days that it took God to create everything, at the end of every day he said, he said something and he did something, right? He stopped what he was doing and he looked at it and he said it was what? Do you remember what he says? Good. He calls it good, right? Everything he makes, he puts, he puts light, he speaks light into being and light becomes, right? He forms everything just with his bare thoughts and words and, and everything comes into being and he calls all of that good. But when he formed man, when he created us, he stopped and he said, what? That's what? Very good. So if good, if you know what the word good means, it's, a, it's something that the goodness comes, it is to be from God. That's what good means. It is of God, right? He says that we are the closest thing to him in all of creation, right? How do we know that even? He says it. When he's forming man in the creation story, he says he talks in relationship, God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. He says, "Let us," referring to themselves, the triune God, "make him in our image." So when God looks at us, calls us very good, when he created us and said that, he, that we are formed in his image and likeness, he sees the most value in us over anything else in all of creation because he sees himself in us, and that's the most important thing, right? So we know that God loves us because he sees himself in us. There are certain things about God, there are certain truths about God that can't be undone, and one of those truths is God is love, Right? God can't look at himself and resent himself, right? We do a really good job of doing that, I think, a lot. You know, we look at ourselves in the mirror and we say, like, I don't like this about myself, or we, we're, we're really hard or judgmental on ourselves. A lot of times, I was talking to some teens about this a long time ago. Um, well, not that long ago. Uh, and I, I used to have a beard, like a really big beard. And the whole reason I've grown a beard my entire adult life is because I'm really sensitive about my appearance, specifically my weight and my appearance. And I grew the beard so you couldn't see all of my chins, right? So it made me feel better about myself. If I saw the beard, I'm like, oh, my face doesn't look as heavy or as bad as I think it does. But I realized when I thought about that, like, that's not what God sees in me. He doesn't see something ugly or not valuable. And I was like, "It's a really bad example for me to set, not only for myself, but for my kids or for the people I interact with. like. I'm hiding behind this mask thing. And so I took my beard off, and I've actually decided I'm not going to grow my beard back, at least for a very long time, until I can kind of get over that, that mental or emotional hurdle. And I had to remind myself, like, you know, when God sees me, he sees himself, and he sees the most valuable thing in all of creation. Why would I try and hide that or alter that or be ashamed of it? So God sees us in his own likeness and image. We're made in his own likeness and image. That's how we know that he loves us, right? The second question is how can I, as an imperfect or limited human, be in a relationship with a perfect and eternal and divine God? And I think that the secret to that is we can't seem to understand that we aren't called to be perfect the way that we understand perfection, right? When you hear the word perfect, what do you think? When somebody tells you to be perfect, what do you think? Absolutely no mistakes, no errors. Right, don't make any errors, don't mess up, be the best at everything you do, be successful, like wealthy and stuff like that. So we have an image of perfection, right? What else? What else do we think about when we think about perfection? God. Okay, so we think about God. (laughs) Right? So what makes God perfect? Because I agree with you. I, when I think about perfection, I think about God. But what makes him perfect? The whole definition.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Of, uh, our, our definition of him. Okay. Uh, All-knowing uh, can, can never uh, make a mistake. Everything mm-hmm. he does is, is uh, according to plan. Perfect, right? And it's really tricky too, because we get tripped up in scripture with that idea, because what does Jesus say about us? He says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That feels like a really big order. That feels like something I can't possibly do, right? But I think that if we were to back up for a second, if Jesus is telling us to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, we have to better understand what perfection is. And I think that it comes down to several things. One of them is being forgiving, because God can't not forgive, right? If we ask for forgiveness, if we, with a, like it says in Scripture, with a contrite heart, humbly present ourselves to God and ask for his forgiveness, he, can't, he won't refuse it. He says he won't, and God can't contradict himself, right? God can't say one thing, can't tell us one thing, and then do something totally opposite. He can't. He can't contradict himself. And God says that he will be forgiving. So we have to be forgiving, right? But I think that the other thing that comes along with that is being obedient. God understood our imperfection and only asked obedience. He didn't make us perfect in the sense that we look at God as perfect, right? He, in the beginning, gave us eternal life from the beginning. We were supposed to live forever in the garden with God. It says in scripture that man, or Adam and Eve, even communed with God, talked with him, had a relationship with him, the same way that we have a relationship. And it's funny because I was thinking about that. Gus and I, my son, are reading this book. Do you guys remember this book called *The Indian in the Cupboard*? Yeah. You guys remember that book? I, I know. I'm glad you said yes because this, this metaphor is totally lost if you do I'll give you the, the brief spark notes. It, it's in this book. This kid gets a little wooden chest, a toy chest, and he finds that if he puts a Fake toy in the toy chest and locks the door and then opens the door. It comes to life, right? And it's really funny because it talks about this boy and he has an, a, a toy Indian that comes to life and then he has a relationship with this toy Indian who's now a real person. And I think that like like Gus when we were reading, he's like he said, is that what it was like? For Adam, that he was like this very little person looking up at this very big person and talking I'm like, well, I guess so, because it says like he he walked in the garden with Adam, so he had to have seen him, and maybe that's what it was like. I mean, maybe that's how God presented him. So I just thought it was a really funny image of just us as little tiny things walking like kind of hand in hand with this very large, with this very large kind of father figure. Um, But he understood us as imperfect. Knowing our hearts, he understood that we had the ability or maybe even the propensity to fail, right? And we did, right? He only asked obedience. The only demand, the only request he ever makes, he gives us everything. He says, this is all yours. You do whatever you want with it. Just don't eat this thing. Don't eat the fruit on this one tree. And all he asked was obedience, right? And the ultimate, the ultimate power of sin that we see in the scripture is not that it leads us to evil, is that it leads us to doubt, right? It leads us to, to question the legitimacy of obedience. Because we hear the word obey, and what does that conjure up? What does that image conjure up? That word, when we hear the word obey. Like was like, so. that? Like a defense. Yeah, okay. Like it's a defense mechanism? Or, or what do you mean? Like it would make me like Oh, so so when you hear, like if somebody were to tell you like obey, you would get very defensive. If you, I think that that's a natural response, right? I think that's a, a legitimate response. What do you think when you hear the word obey? You think of your mom? <laughs> okay. But yeah, because we're told, like obey, obedience or saying like obey, it, it, it brings up two images in, in my head. It brings up, uh, a pet owner, like a dog owner, telling its dog, telling their dog what to do, and what happens when dogs step out of line—they get reprimanded, right? You know, you like the dog m- makes a mess on the carpet, and the owner angrily shakes the dog's head and rubs it in the mess, right? Or you know, when the dog doesn't listen and does the thing, and like digs up a potted plant, or you know, you, you have those images when dogs misbehave. A lot of times, a dog will get swatted, right? That's not an effective way to foster obedience, though, right? It's abusive, right? We think of something like that, and it's, that's, an, that's an abusive relationship, right? I also kind of think about the idea of, and it's a very far extreme, but the idea of slavery, right? The, like, like, for you to obey me, I need to confine you, right? I need to lock you down, chain you, force you into obedience, right? But God never forced us into obedience. He asked it of us, right? He propositioned obedience. He said, just do this one thing. Just don't do that. I want, I want everything. I want everything that's good for you. I want to be with you forever. Just stay away from this and trust me that I know what's best for you. It sounds a lot like how, if any of you guys are parents, how parents ask their kids to be obedient. I remember when I was younger, I was like, I want to say second grade, maybe a little bit older. My younger brother and I, we were getting ready, and the thing we always did after, we would go to Mass on Sundays, and then, um, usually either before or after Mass, we would go for a hike. It's this really cool little canyon that had like, these really great walking trails, and we'd go for a hike. And So a lot of times my mom would start stuff on the stove, and she was boiling water before we left for this hike, and she would always say, like, don't touch the stove, right? We all got told that. There's boiling water up there. Don't touch it. And what was, our, what was the question that we always asked? Why? Why? Right, we always said why. The Interesting thing about when God asks obedience of Adam and Eve is they never ask why. He just asked it and they were like, okay. Like they agreed to obedience, they got talked out of it. But I remember my brother, we had the boiling pot of water cause she was gonna make something. I think she was boiling potatoes or something like that for like a mashed potatoes or something. And um, I heard a noise in the kitchen and then I came in there and everything looked fine. But I remember we're in the car heading to go to mass and my brother had, like, he, he had an like a undershirt on, and his church shirt, like a button down shirt, was like draped over his, almost like a waiter putting a, a towel over their arm. And he had it draped across his arm, and my mom was like, hey, come on, Steve, put your shirt on. And he's like, no, no, no I'm good. I'll, I'll put it on when we get to church. And I was like, dude, just put the shirt on. And then eventually she said, Adam, get the shirt. And I went and I reached across to a seat and I pulled the shirt off his arm, and he had a giant blister. On his arm. It went from his wrist almost all the way up to his elbow and it was this big gnarly blister. And I was like, what happened? And he had spilled the water and burnt himself, right? And even, So he didn't obey. He, did, he questioned that and he didn't obey. And really what it comes down to is obedience is for our own good. And I know that that sounds really scary or mean or, um, or controlling, but our, when we obey, we actually are doing what's best for ourselves and protecting ourselves. God understood our imperfection and only asked for our obedience. And even though we failed, God promised, and that's the other thing, God can't break his promises. He vowed to spend the rest of time drawing us back into our relationship with him. And we ask the question, how does a real relationship with God look and feel? What do you think of when you think of your relationships? Like the closest relationship you have, what do you think about when you think about that relationship? Love. You think about love. Good. What else? Trust. Trust. Important. You ever argue with the person you love? Uh, a lot? Maybe sometimes more than we'd like? Absolutely. When we talk about relationship with God, it looks like just like any other relationship. It has its ups and downs. Right? There's peaks and valleys. In all relationships, the way to make our relationship with God work, which oddly enough, when our relationship with God is working, our other relationships seem to work a lot better, is trust, right? We can't obey somebody. We can't obey God if we're not willing to trust God, right? And that's really, really hard. And in a lot of the research I was doing when I was thinking about the idea of creating a, a lasting relationship with God and figuring out what he says about us, is I, it feels like a, a, the majority of the reason we choose not to trust God or we have a problem obeying God is because we know that life is finite, right? We know we're gonna die, which is a scary thought. And it's hard for me, I'm speaking from my own personal experience, it's hard for me to trust God knowing that I'm looking at death down the road, right? But I also have to remind myself that that's not the end, right? That's not the end of my relationship with God. We have to be willing to trust God even though we're knowing, even though we know we're going to die. The goal of an eternal relationship with him is we have to trust that he's leading us into eternity. We put God in the box. That he's going to take care of all the things that we need while we're here on earth. Which is absolutely true. We're going to talk about that later. But we have to be willing to trust him outside of the box. Into our eternity. That it's not just about the 60, 70, 80, whatever, how many years we get here. That trusting him and obeying him extends well beyond that. That's why so much... We have to be willing to trust him. That's why so much of our relationship with God in scripture gets compared to what? Do you know what it gets compared to a lot of the time? The most frequently it gets compared to. The, mo- the thing it most frequently gets compared to is the relationship between a husband and a wife, right? Paul talks about it ext- extensively. We hear it used as a metaphor a lot in Psalms and uh, Proverbs and stuff like that. So we hear this relationship between God and man as a relate the same way uh, a husband and a wife relate to one another. And I please understand that when I say husband and wife, when I do this motion of up and down, I'm not saying that a wife is under or less than a husband. So please don't take that away from my somewhat Italian hand motions when I talk. But we have to understand that wives are asked to trust their husbands, right? St. Paul teaches, and it's this wedding, it's this thing that we hear at weddings a lot. Wives be, and it's an ugly word, subordinate to your husbands, right? but we have to understand what the word subordinate means, right? It means in a scriptural context that we are supposed to trust God. Talking about the relationship between man and God, we're supposed to trust God knowing that he has what's best for us in mind. God can't do evil things, right? Is God capable of evil? Nope. Overall consensus would be no, right? Because God is the perfection of love. God is the perfection of good. He, he is the ultimate, he is the pinnacle of, of good and love. So he can't do evil things. So he always has what's best for us in mind. Sometimes our idea of what's best for us doesn't line up with God's idea of what's best for us. Again, something we're going to come back to. So what it means is that he has, so the husband in the relationship has to have both parties' best interests in mind. So when it says that wives should be subordinate, it means that they have to trust that their husband's going to do what's best for both of them. As a, as a unit, right? So he's not just gonna do the things that he wants to do if those things are going to hurt his wife. If he's doing things that are hurting his wife for his own gain, that's not something that's done out of love. That's something that's done out of selfishness, right? That would qualify as abuse, right? When somebody does something for their own personal gain but it hurts another person, right? So a husband is supposed to do the things that are, benefit both of them right? Wives are asked to trust their husbands, to trust in that he knows the order and how things should go, and that he has both of their best interests in mind. God has to be that way because he can't contradict himself, like like we said. He can't do something evil or lead us into evil, right? Husbands should emulate God. In that same scripture passage that Paul teaches, he says, wives, be subordinate to your husbands, but then he also says, Husbands, lay down your lives just as Christ laid down his life for the church. That means that not only do you physically have to give up your life, but you have to lay down your desires as a husband a lot. And we're going to talk about marriage relationships in a minute, or relationships like that in a minute. But you have to listen, right? Understanding that God is listening to us, right? He hears our prayers. He knows our innermost being, and he responds to our prayers accordingly. So what are the ways that we can do this? A lot of this boils down to how we communicate with God. So we talk about prayer a lot. You'll see them on the right hand side. Things that we can do to help us understand better our relationship with God. So first and foremost, God wants us to understand that we are his beloved child. We're a beloved daughter or son of God. Before anything else in our life, we are a a child of God. And he looks at us as if we are the most important thing that was ever put into motion in this entire universe. He sees us as his favorite thing. Talks about scripture, calls us the apple of it. We're called the apple of his eye, right? We're the most important thing to him. So when we're talking to God and helping understand our relationship with God, obviously scripture helps. And I put reflecting as a couple because we're going to talk about how relationship with God filters down into our relationship with others. But if you if you are married, or even if you're dating or in a relationship, finding time to pray and look at scripture together only strengthens things. It never can break you apart. It never can. Being vulnerable with prayer, being open to hearing what God is trying to say to the things that we pray, and I put in Eucharistic adoration. I think that that's really important because spending time to be in presence, like physical presence with God is super important. The same way, like if you're dating somebody, or even if you're married, you can't stop going on dates because then what happens with your relationship? You get bored and then you wander. You look somewhere else. You wander mentally somewhere else, right? Personal and private prayer and writing in, and looking in on the writings of the saints, too. All right? Any questions about relationship stuff? I know we threw a whole lot at you right, at the, right out the gate. Any questions about the relationship stuff? Knowing that we're a son or daughter and that he sees himself in us and he, and he desires us to be in a relationship with him first. All right? Cool. So let's talk about Identity. So first, like I mentioned, we're beloved sons and daughters of God. That's always the first and most important thing when it comes to identity. We can't be anything else without always being mindful of the fact that we're a child of God. But next we ask the question, who am I? And how can I continue to discover who I am? Well, a lot of that has to do with developing our identity based in a relationship with God. And a lot of that comes to understand of voc- like understanding vocation, what it means to have a vocation. We're all called to a vocation, whether it's married life, whether it's single life, whether it's religious life or ordination or whatever it is, that is a way of living, vocation is a way of living that leads others back into relationship with God. So if you're, if like for me, I'm a husband, I'm married, my first and foremost responsibility is to make sure that my wife has a relationship with God, right? She is my vocation. The ugly truth about the vocation of marriage is that all the time, our spouses have to be first. So like for me, my wife has to be first. Not only does that mean I have to prioritize her in helping her develop a relationship with God, but I have to prioritize my time with hers as being paramount, right? Our kids are a fruit of our vocation. They're not the vocation itself. And that sounds really ugly and callous, but the fact of the matter is, is I will be a horrible father if I don't prioritize my wife. I'm a bad dad if I'm not prioritizing my relationship with my wife. That's just the truth. Because my kids are going to see that and be like, I, now I'm really bad at this. Because I, I love being a dad. Like I am obsessed with being a dad. Um, I am the kind of dad who even though my kid's in kindergarten, I have managed to get uh, like a replica jersey of his team's soccer jersey with his number on the back. Like, I am crazy obsessed with my kid, with my kids, I should say. You know, like I, and, and I, I need to not focus as heavily on them, I need to focus as heavily on my wife, if not more than I do with them. Because if they see me not prioritizing her, then that's the relationship that they're going to emulate when they, if they're called to marriage. If my son sees me not putting a priority on my wife, he's not gonna put a priority on his wife if he's called to marriage. If my, if my daughter sees me not prioritizing my wife, she's gonna fall for any man who will not prioritize her. She'll take anybody and that's not what she should take because she's worth more than that. Our spouse is our vocation, the kids are a fruit of our vocation. But I have to understand that my job is to lead, first my wife and then my kids to sainthood, right? So my identity is first I'm a child of God but next I'm a husband then I'm a father right these are all things that are tied to my vocation after that it's a relationship with other people right so it's a relationship with our family we are we have parents right so we're children we understand parental relationship we have friends and acquaintances we have friendship relationships we have neighbors I'm really bad about being in a relationship with my neighbors. I know the guy who lives next door to me. And the only reason I know the guy, one guy who lives next door to me, his name's Mark. And the only reason I know Mark is because I don't have a snowblower. And during the winter, Mark takes pity on me. And as I'm digging out my giant driveway, he will blow out his driveway and then blow out the sidewalk and then come help blow out my driveway. And now I know Mark because Time and time and time again during the winter, he saves my butt. So I know Mark. And it's really bad that I don't know anybody else in my neighborhood, probably based on the basis because they've never done anything for me. And that's really bad. I'm a bad neighbor. I know that. I'm, that's one of my goals is to be a better neighbor, to go meet people. And I know that I'm taking it in the very literal sense, like the people on my street. But being a good neighbor is how we are with the people that we see at Mass., you know what I mean? Or uh, uh, one of the things is um, sometimes when I go to mass um, at the parish by our house, uh, there's a gentleman who has um, he has uh, cerebral palsy, and I've noticed he just started coming a couple weeks ago, and I noticed that he does when he when it's time for the sign of peace, nobody shakes hands with him. Nobody does. So a couple of us have made a concerted effort. I don't necessarily sit where he sits, but I go and I try and shake his hand and say peace be with you. And the funny thing is, maybe me and one other person will shake his hand. And every time he does it, he'll, he'll get his hand. And you can't, he can't really grip my hand the way that I grip. You would grip somebody's hand and give them the sign of peace or whatever. But he'll always do two things. He'll go to shake my hand. And with his free hand, he'll kind of pat me on my shoulder. And he's trying to hug me. I figured out he's trying to give me a hug. And that's his version of giving. And every time we're done, he will, the best he can, give me a thumbs up. And he's showing me, like, thank you for acknowledging me. He's showing me thank you for letting me know that I'm here because, I mean, I get mad that people in my congregation don't acknowledge him being there and shake his hand. Like, I'm not saying the whole church has to be like, everybody has to flock to him and shake his hand because, I mean, the sign of peace would take forever in that regard, but being a good neighbor, acknowledging that people are there. We're called to be in a relationship with others because we're called to acknowledge the fact that, the relation, that God is a God of relationship, right? God communes with himself, which is pretty weird, if you think about it. That's a weird thing, a weird concept to grasp, but he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they talk to each other. They understand one another. A lot of times we hear that the definition of the Holy Spirit is the eternal bond of love between the Father and the Son, but it's an actual being. The Holy Spirit is called what in Scripture? It comes to us in a bunch of different forms, fire, wind, dove, but the Holy Spirit is called him in Scripture. It has an identity, right? It has a personage, and God is in relationship with that person. So if God is a God of relationship, not only with himself, but with us, we're supposed to be people of relationship. Our identity is also found in how we are as spouses and parents, but also as children and brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews and aunts and uncles and uh, neighbors and co-workers, our identity is tied into that. where Our identity is relationship. It always goes back to that idea of relationship first. We're called to be in a relationship. Understanding our identity means that we understand what it means to be made in the image and likeness of the triune God. And we are created as an expression of God's triune love. We are called to be an expression of God's love. So what are the things that we can do to help us best understand our identity? Um, One of the things that I think is really important, and I'm really bad at this a lot of the time, is time together in like family prayer. So being together with your family, however that looks, and finding time for prayer. Um, I don't have the best formula for that. I mean, Jack and I were talking about this uh, the other night. Uh, We tried for a really long time to do like a family rosary and I found that my kids just can't hack it and I can't hack it because I've got horrible ADD so we, we do like a decade and that usually works but finding the time for us to like say grace every meal we say grace it's a quick prayer it says that we're thankful it's asking God into our presence and stuff so finding time to pray as a family Devotional prayer is really great, too. I put in the rosary and divine, cha- divine mercy Chaplet and stuff like that. Novenas and consecrations are really cool. These are things that my wife is super good at. And I literally, like, she has to drag me kicking and screaming through this kind of prayer. And that's me being willing to trust her. You know what I mean? That sometimes being a good husband is laying down the fact that we have to be in control, that I have to be in control all the time and let her lead me. So I have to trust her to lead me through prayer when i stink at prayer because sometimes i do and i know it sounds kind of cornball but music you know like there's a there's a reason why we incorporate music into worship like in liturgy and stuff like that because we're drawn it's something about our our it's in our dna to respond to music and there's nothing bad to using music as a part of our prayer you know sometimes it's really great like worship music you know like like, there's certain bands or worship acts that I really like that help me pray. Sometimes it's more traditional. Like, my wife loves, um, there's these sisters that do uh, chant. like, right? And they do, like, it's all chanted music. There's no instrumental. And she loves it. I can't do it. It's, I told her, I'm like, it sounds creepy. I don't know why it sounds creepy to me, but I just can't get into it. But those things help us focus in on prayer. Music can definitely be a way for us to focus in on prayer. Anything? It's so quiet. Do you, um, yeah. do you say grace the traditional grace? Yeah, you, usually. Um, so my son, what happened with us is my son actually learned um, a version of the traditional grace prayer at school because he goes to a Catholic school. And now that is the forced grace that, we're used, that we are forced to use because he, one of his jobs in his class is he helps lead grace at the lunch table. So they all sit together and he's the one who's responsible for making sure that everybody says grace. And so now he, if we start a meal without saying grace, he'll be like, guys, everybody, and he'll put his hands up. And it doesn't matter if it's just the four of us at home or if it's a 30-person family dinner. He will stand up, everyone, and hands will go out, and he does this. And he puts his hand to his forehead, and we're like, what? Oh, yeah, right, grace, (laughs) right? And then we pray grace. And so, yeah, he usually uses the traditional one. Um, It's not the one that I used growing up, but it's it's the traditional traditional, um, prayer of grace. Um, I've been uh, corrupted by uh, friends who are uh, Church of Christ, Baptist, and I'm really starting to really like that. Uh, Heavenly Father, we're here. We're glad we're all here together. Thank you for this food, those who prepared it. You know, yeah. just, just talk. Yeah. I'm really getting it, uh, to like that. One of the cool things about prayer, one of the things I heard about prayer is especially when it comes to how we as Catholics tend to have this kind of formulaic, repetitive prayer. I heard somebody compare it one time to the same way when you're on like a basketball team or a football team, you're constantly running and practicing plays. And it's not about because this is gonna be the best way to score points, it's because when you're in a situation and you're under stress, you need to be able to recall it quickly and and effectively execute, right? I find, a lot of the time, I don't pray the Hail Mary or the Our Father as much as I feel like I should, right? I try and be very fluid and uh, kind of spontaneous in my prayer and letting God know where I'm at in the moment, but sometimes I just can't find the words to do it because I'm stressed or I'm um, worried or I'm sick, like physically ill. Or there's a lot of things that will distract me from my ability to try and pray naturally, and then I find myself in those moments where I'm, where I'm not focusing on Him to be able to snap back to those things that I learned that are now just like a neat, like a like a gut reaction, you know? Like so I say like you know I'm sick and I can't find the words to say, and I'm just stressed out, and I don't know how to express to God all the things that are going wrong or how bad I feel, and so I just start diving into an Our Father because that's how Jesus says I'm supposed to pray, right? Um, so I, I dig that. I dig that that's, I think that that's really cool being able to just say what it is that you're thankful for. You're thankful for the people who prepared the food and for, the, for the, the conversation and the fellowship that you're having and stuff like that. But I think it's equally important to be able to rely on the things that we've learned as an expression of the things that we can't possibly say because we, like my son, I don't think my son understands what he's saying fully when he says grace, but he understands when he's saying that prayer he's telling God, thank you. And he's glad that his family is there at the table. And he's glad that there's chicken nuggets because it's, a, it's one of those nights where he's not gonna eat anything but chicken nuggets. You know, Sometimes he'll be like, yeah, dad, let's get Chinese food. His new thing is like, when we, when we order Chinese, he's like, can we get shrimp? And all so like my five-year-old likes to eat shrimp, which I think is awesome. I think it's really cool that he's got maybe a little bit more cultured palate than other five-year-olds. But sometimes it's, I just wanna eat mac and cheese, dad. And no matter what the circumstance, he's expressing his thanks which is, I think, the most important part. Um, all right, anybody got anything? I know I'm kind of powering through it, but I hope you guys are, I hope it's saying something to you. So next, and lastly, when we talk about the relationship, identity, and the third part of that acronym, RIM, is talking about mission. Uh, we want to find our purpose and follow that purpose, right? We all want to have a life with purpose. So that first question, how do I know what I'm supposed to do with my life? God desires us to follow our dreams, the things that we desire for our lives. And if they're right for us, he's gonna open the doors. And if they're wrong for us, he's gonna close them. And all of that goes back into that relationship of being his child and trusting that he knows what's right for us. I had to come to the conclusion right around my eighth grade year that I wasn't made for basketball. In eighth grade, I was five foot 10. And I was taller than the majority of the people in my class. And so I played basketball. I noticed, though, that as, no matter how hard I tried or how hard I worked at it or worked out or whatever, I had maybe the worst vertical jump in the history of basketball. With all of my might jumping to take a jump shot, you maybe could fit a handful like, of pieces of paper. Like maybe five sheets of paper could make it between me and the floor. I just I, I couldn't cut it. And as much as I knew, as much as I loved it and I wanted to play basketball, I just I couldn't do it. I was really good at boxing people out and grabbing a rebound, but when it came to, you know, like shooting and all the stuff that you need to win, not my thing. And so without anybody talking me out of it, I just realized like, all right, you know what? Basketball is not my thing. And God closed the door because my whole thing was I love basketball so much, I'm like I'm going to play in college, and I'm going to go to the pros. And God was like, no. <laughs> Son, no. This is not, and that's the hardest thing: is realizing that sometimes, when we pray to God and we're asking Him for guidance or for the things that we think that we need, He's gonna tell us no, and that there's a good reason for the no. And it's it's simply out of love. The same way that I have to tell my kids, when you see something on the stove, don't touch it. I don't want them to have to learn, like if you yank this boiling water off, you're gonna burn yourself. I just want them to know. I want them to trust me. I got to be able to trust God with the things that I'm supposed to do in my life, you know? God doesn't want us to waste our life on monotony, but he needs us to be he wants us to be willing to trust us in the things that he want, in, the, in the things that we want to do with our lives. He's always going to give us opportunities to thrive and to survive. Unfortunately, in my lifetime, I've I've had two layoffs in the in the work that I've done when I wasn't working full time for the church. Two different times, there were layoffs, and it was just a downsizing. It wasn't like I got fired because I was bad at my job or anything like that. It was, worked for a big company, and they said, we got we to gotta move some people out. We got to free up money. You've been here in this, you've been here for a shorter amount of time, so you're going to lose your job. And at the time, I was like, man, why, God, why is this happening? Because I had to go home and tell my wife, and we cried, and we stressed, and what are we going to do? And I wasn't seeing the forest through the trees because especially in that first time I got laid off, I'd been at that job for six months and they gave me almost a year's worth of pay. And I was like, wait, so you're gonna pay me to stay at home and raise my kids? And I think that that was such a crazy, because when I I think about my prayer life, the thing I prayed for the most when I was a kid is I really wanted to be a husband and a father and God granted that prayer. And then I said, like, God, can you help me find a way to provide for my family? And he gave, me the, he gave me the opening to get into this job. And then when that door got closed, he said, okay, now go be a dad. Because I love, I mean, God bless my father. My father was hardworking and committed. But he took on so much extra work outside of his, outside of his full-time job to make money for my family that it was a- after 6.30 in the morning, I wouldn't see him again until 8 o'clock at night. And I was the kind of kid who wanted my dad around. You know, like I wanted the dad who was going to, you know, play catch or, you know, like hang out with me and show me. Because my dad, my dad knows everything. He's good with woodwork and electrical work. And he's a, he, he was a science teacher, but he, he also worked as an engineer in the Air Force and stuff. So my dad is the smartest guy I know. And I just wanted to soak up all that info, but he was so busy working that I didn't get to build a relationship with him. And so God gave me the, almost the first two years of my son's life to be his parent, to be right there with him the entire time. And now I'm thankful that my kid knows who I am and that he's willing to trust me. Not that he doesn't trust my wife, but that he's willing to trust us equally because I think that if we're all honest, what's, what was our first, inclo- our first inclination, our first impulse when we were hurt or stressed out or like something was wrong? Who was the person that we went to first? Well, we went to our mom's. Right, and I really wanted my kid. To, I want my kids to trust me as much as they trust my my wife. And now I'm not saying that they come to me more than her, but they're willing to come to one of us and tell us what's going on. And then their next inclination is to bring in the other parent. So when they go to my wife and they're like, "Mom, I hurt. I fell and I hurt myself." Perfect example is last weekend we went on a trip to the Adirondacks, and Gus. Uh, fell down We in this nice cabin, and they had a nice finished basement that people stayed in and stuff, and he fell down the basement stairs. Not all of them, because there was like 20 of them, but he fell down a good chunk of them, and he, he had like rug burn or like, or like road rash on his face, and he, he fell and he hit his head and he was so upset, and they brought him upstairs, one of Kate's sisters brought him upstairs, and she was right there, right? And so he ran to Kate, and he hugged her, and he was crying, and he was crying, and he was so upset, and then he said, where's dad? And I'm like, oh, I'm right here, buddy. And so he came over and, and he, he, like, dragged me into the situation. So, like, he pulled me into, like, saying what was going on and sharing how he hurt himself. And, and I thought that was really cool that he was willing to trust me with that. My daughter does the same thing. You know, like, when she's hurt or she's, str- or she's frustrated, she brings us both into that. Um, God wants to give us the opportunity to live out our dreams, but he's also willing to say that this isn't the right time for the dream. So how do we know what God wants for our lives? It's really simple. If we're striving and we're striving and, and it keeps getting closed off, then maybe it's time to consider what it is that we're doing and if it aligns with what God wants for us. And I mean, in all honesty, it's letting him into the decision. When we're doing things in our lives, whether it's, whether it's our work or or if we decide that we want to help people and do some kind of ministry or we're going to go on a trip somewhere, wherever it is that we're doing, uh, we want to involve God in those discussions and in those decisions because he knows, again, what's best for us. So forms of prayer that can help us understand God's mission in our life. Uh, retreats. I think retreats are super powerful. Uh, I don't get to go on retreats as much as I would like to, but I think that taking time away from life, away from the busyness and, and, and the, bustle, the hustle and bustle and everything and letting God be there with us is really important. Uh, Regular confession, I think, is super important. The more um, connected we are to God spiritually, the easier it is for us to understand what he's saying to us. And when we allow sin into our lives, it just dampens the signal. You know, we can't hear him as loudly as we would normally. Uh, Spiritual direction is super important. And if you're not familiar with what spiritual direction is, it's actually finding somebody. It doesn't necessarily have to be a priest, but a lot of priests get training. In spiritual direction. My first spiritual director was my youth minister, and she was a woman, so I mean, they, can, they don't necessarily have to be ordained or male. Um, but finding a spiritual director, somebody who understands what spiritual direction is, and that it's not counseling, it's not therapy, it's talking about your spiritual life and finding where God is in that. So they are basically um, an antenna, they're a booster for that signal. Your spiritual director should be a booster for that that thing that God's trying to help you hear. And involving prayer in the everyday, non-religious situations or relationships or decisions. So are we willing to let God be involved in all of the decisions that we're making? You know? And it seems dumb, but like one of the things that Kate started doing was she really wanted us to pray about when we go grocery shopping. And I'm like, why are we praying about groceries? This seems ridiculous. But we wanted to live a healthier lifestyle. So one of the things that we did is we started praying about what are we gonna eat? How are we gonna prepare it? Like, and being mindful about stuff, letting God into the things that aren't necessarily like, hey, please pray, and like God, I needed you to look out for my grandma because she's sick, or this person because they went through a job loss or whatever it is. Letting, them in, letting God into the mundane stuff is really, really important because it helps us connect to what it is that we're supposed to do, whether it's day by day, or in this season, or for this whole year, or in our jobs. God, letting him into all of the non-religious stuff is really important. And I found this, I can't remember who said it, but I wanted to share it. We will do great things for God to the extent that we pray. Through prayer, we let God reveal our vocation in his time. When we let God lead us to a mission, it will always be an adventure. God wants us to be adventurous. God wants to join us in the adventure. Um, so last but not least, some questions that we can ask like, to pray about or to think about. It's on that last part on the right-hand side. What's the greatest obstacle between me and a relationship with God? Where are the obstacles in our relationships, with, in our relationship with God specifically? What part of my identity am I wary of trusting God with? Am I willing to let him help me be a better spouse or parent? Am I willing to let him help me be a better employee at our job? Am I willing to let him make me a better neighbor to the people around me? Am I I willing to let him help me forgive the people that have wronged me? And how can I let God give me a greater sense of purpose and mission? And the last thing I kind of wanted to share, and we'll have a little bit of time to discuss if you guys want to discuss, but even when we have understood our mission and are on the journey we always have to return to relationship for strength and clarification, for renewal and for rejuvenation. And in the relationship, we are reminded of our identity and that, all, and that we are always, we are equipped and created for our mission. And we have a renewed sense of purpose and are more deeply grounded in the God who sent us on the mission in the first place. So we have to constantly be willing to return to the relationship and that helps influence our identity. And that helps influence our mission. But then we're always going back to the relationship. It's the cyclical relationship that we have with God. Thoughts? Questions? You guys don't look terribly glazed over. That's good. <laughs> hope it wasn't super boring. Um, good. But yeah, so I mean, if you want to hold on to these, um, think about them, maybe incorporate them into into your prayer, if there's something in there that you saw about prayer, like forms of prayer, things that you could do to better um, connect with God in those three parts of relationship, identity, and mission, uh, I challenge you to do it. I challenge you to maybe find one more thing that you can add. It doesn't have to be crazy, complicated, or, or in-depth or anything like that, but just maybe finding five more minutes a day to add one of those things into into your relationship and your identity and your mission. In-